So we're in the middle of a series called The Jesus Stories. Before uh, Christmas, we began this series, uh, and uh, during that, we, uh, we really just sort of looked at the person of Jesus and, uh, and uh, some of the miracles and healings that he did. It was a wonderful series. It seemed to gain some traction, and we enjoyed teaching it, and you apparently enjoyed hearing it. And so we felt we would revisit that series, and that's indeed what we're doing. And, uh, and this time around, though, we're looking more closely at the parables and teaching of Jesus. And uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, um, you know, there's such a rich, rich uh, deposit of Jesus' stories and, and indeed teachings. It's almost, where shall I begin? But as, we, uh, as I've listened to Mark and to Kev preaching, did a great, a great job, I really felt with a certain amount of trepidation, I might add, that we could not do a series which referred to the teachings of Jesus without looking at what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if any of you know what I mean by that, you will know that that is far too ambitious a project to do in just one sermon. So we've already decided we will do a series, probably in the summer term, on the Sermon on the Mount and look at that. But, but it's just appropriate, it's the right thing to do in this short series to make a reference to that. So I'm going to kind of give you an overview of it, which I hope will find you helpful. And I suppose what I really hope is it'll make you go away and uh, study that, uh, that passage, which we will be looking at, and, and dig into it deeply yourself and, and, and feed on it yourself you know, we're very fond, it's rather an ugly expression, but we're, well, what we try and do here is, is try and encourage you and intrigue you and provoke you even to become, rather ugly term, self-feeders. You know, if your Christian life is utterly dependent upon what uh, myself and the team give you on a Sunday, well, you will be fed, but, you know, there's so much more to it than that. It really is about you having that personal relationship with Jesus and digging deeply in yourself. So I hope to intrigue you today so that when we come to preach the, the series in its fullness, um, we will find ourselves looking uh, at uh, familiar territory as it was. So I want to start by, by, by title, entitling this talk, Great Expectations. That's a Dickens title, is it not? Great Expectations. And, and as I was thinking about this, and as I was thinking about the sort of, you know, the, 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 the call to be a Christian, I found myself thinking to the various expectations that the world has of Christians. Now, many people don't even consider Christians, have no expectations whatsoever. And I think it would be uh, arrogant of us to believe that they spend any time at all considering what Christians do. But curiously enough, many do, and certainly society does. And there's some sort of things that kind of go with that. So, you know, uh, in the world would say to us, don't swear. You know, we're, we're, you're a Christian, don't swear. I mean, I'm part of a, as, as many of you know, I'm part of a, a classic car club. Uh, great to see Jerry here today. Great, great MGB mentor and uh, lovely to have you here, Jerry. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things in the car club. When I first joined it, people weren't quite sure how to be around me. And uh, so they would do this kind of thing where they would, you know, they would cuss, and then they'd say, oh, sorry, Vicar, you know. Uh, and, you know, as soon as people know you're a Christian, they have this expectation that you're not going to swear. So, it's, I mean, I don't, I'm not advocating swearing, by the way. I mean, perish the thought. 
But you know, they, that, so they, the world has an expectation that Christians don't swear, and there was a lot of other things we don't drink. Well, that came as a bit of a shock to them, because uh, I I do partake, you know, a sherry at Christmas, you know. Uh, they don't smoke, and I don't smoke, although I used to smoke like a chimney. You know, there's this whole sort of load of stuff. You know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't swear, go to church, be miserable, don't have sex. Really? And then there's the church. The church, by and large, there's an expectation even within the, ch- within the church itself about what behavior looks like. Don't swear. You know, don't drink, don't smoke. Go to church, be nice, don't have sex. What? <laughs> well, I failed on that one. Haven't I, Fliss? <laughs> oh, and the other thing is, which I really love, is wear a hat. Got to wear it. Ladies, how many of you ladies here have got a hat on at the moment? None of you. Shame on you. You know, we have all this baggage. It's, that's what it is. It's baggage. Both outside the church and within the church. So much baggage. You know, you may have been surprised, for example, I'm not presuming, but you may have been surprised to come in here and find that the senior pastor, and that's what I am, you know, is not wearing a dog collar or robes or anything like that. That might be outside the box. You you, you may actually think, well, he's wearing jeans and goodness knows what. Uh, You know, well, we have a little thing about this. We we, we don't dress up because some some people can't dress up. In fact, if anything, we dress down because some people can't dress up. And we want everybody to be able to come to this place and feel comfortable. There's all this baggage going on. What the Sermon on the Mount, as it is called, does for us is really begins to lay down what Jesus and God himself's expectations, great expectations, of the Christian life and the Christian is. And actually, it's very helpful to read it. All these voices, all these opinions, but isn't it good to know what God, what God sees? And actually, what God does and what Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount is, is lay out a new way of living, a new way of living. And actually, it's profoundly challenging. You know, in Matthew's gospel, there are five great chunks of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is really the sort of Mount Everest. If if that teaching is like a mountain range, the Sermon on the Mount is, is the Everest of it all. And actually, as we look at that, Uh, we find ourselves encouraged, heartened, reassured, and profoundly challenged. Now, I did actually consider, it's basically three chapters, take you about 20 minutes or so to read, I guess, depending on your 25 maybe, not a long time to read, you know, the absolute Everest of of Jesus' teaching, the very peak of what he has to say. But I just don't have enough time to do that. So I'm going to pull out some, I'm not even going to say highlights, because part of the agony for me was, 
was I had, had to leave so much out. But just to give you a flavor of the sort of thing that Jesus touches on uh, in this, his, I suppose you call it his inaugural speech, you know, uh, it will perhaps give us some sort of an idea of where Jesus is going with all of this. So what I'm going to do with this, we're going to just, uh, it's going to put Karen under pressure really, but we're going to put blocks of scripture up. The first one is what they call the Beatitudes. And we'll read that together, and then I will slowly read through the others. It'll take us five, ten minutes, and just treat it, if you like, as a bit of a meditation, if you will. Just sort of, I'll try and read it as well as I can, and, uh, and just let that sort of soak in or flow over you or encourage you or challenge you or whatever. But let's begin by reading the Beatitudes together. I just bought these, and they're useless. But right, okay, fine. I tell you what, for this first thing, let's just stand to read this first block of, of Scripture. And it, it begins with, in most modern translations, the words blessed. And so let's read, let's read this together. I'll read it. That's no, fine, thank you. Okay, let's read it together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes. At the northern end of Galilee, there is a a chapel, I visited it, on my own, there's nobody else there, where Jesus, it is thought, proclaimed these to his disciples. Wonderful way in to the Seven on the Mount. Please sit. Now I'm gonna, as I say, I'm gonna read these because my glasses aren't quite what I'd expected. Perhaps, Karen, you can help me just put them on, up, and I'll read them. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. So these are just bits I've pulled out of the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Next one. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where, math, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, I, I read through that, that passage of Scripture, and obviously I've spent a lot of time in it this week, and you, know, you, you, you tend to get fixated on the golden rule, which is we didn't even read in that little selection. Matthew 7, 12, where it says, basically, do as you would be done by. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Love them. Don't despise them. And I, I think we have, to, we have to spend a moment just thinking about the culture into which Jesus was speaking, the Jewish, Gentile, the Roman occupation. This, this was a, a season which was seeing much political turmoil. And the Jews judged the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And the Romans judged the Jews and the Gentiles. There was an enormous amount of criticism. There was an enormous amount of, of really coming together into cliques and ghettos. Much like today. And Jesus said, you are not to be like that. You're to buck the trend. Don't judge, and you will not be judged. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Don't forgive, and your sins will be held against you. Extraordinary things. Extraordinary teachings. And as I read these teachings, beginning with the Beatitudes, it starts and it lulls you into this wonderful poetry, as it seems. And yet, as it goes on, I find myself beginning to wriggle. And the verse that leaps out at me is this one, buried in the middle. Did you catch it? Be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. It makes me feel uncomfortable. The truth of the matter is, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, it does something in me. Instead of being encouraged and heartened and moved by the poetry, I find myself rather like St. Peter, who when he met Jesus for the first time, he fell at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So what are we to do with the Sermon on the Mount? And I do seriously encourage you to go away and, and read it. This is the very essence of Jesus' teaching, a new way of living. But there are two things you need to remember. Two things. First of all, in Jesus, we have not just a great teacher, but one who not only comes to show us a new way of living, as great teachers do, but what he does 
is model to us, not teach, he models to us a new way of being human. Everything he says here, everything he commends us to do, he's living out. He's not just a teacher saying, it would be a good idea if. He is modeling that. And something about his teaching had weight. That's why the crowd marveled. They said, they said of him, what is it about this guy? He speaks with authority. Only people who are living out their teaching will speak with authority. Otherwise, it's just banding around another bunch of good ideas. But there was something compelling about Jesus. And the fact that we're talking about him now tells you just how compelling that teaching is. So the first thing to remember is that in Jesus, we have not just a great teacher, but we have the one who has come, God himself in man, to model a new way of being human. What he's come to do is to model what life should be like and how we should be with one another and can be with one another. We can choose to live a different way. And of course, as we know, Jesus, when he was arrested, when he was accused of, of all manner of things, when he was accused of blasphemy, when he was accused of, of doing his deed by the power of the very devil himself, Jesus modeled the response to the degree that it ended up costing him his life. He went to the cross. We know this as a historical fact. Jesus, the teacher, so the Jewish historian Josephus says, went to the cross. And his followers announced three days later that he was risen from the dead. When Jesus went to the cross, he dealt with all the stuff that hinders you and I from living out this new way of being human. He dealt with the sin that, that clings to us. It's still something that we, we wrestle with. St. Paul, the great St. Paul himself in the book of Romans wrestled with this. He says, I want to do right. I want to do the right thing. I, have, I know what I'm supposed to do, but then I end up doing the wrong thing. And he ends up by saying, a bit like Peter, a bit like my little comment just then, he says, woe is me. That's the first thing you have to remember. Jesus is not just putting forward a few good ideas. Jesus is modeling to us what in the power of the Holy Spirit as a born-again Christian is possible for us. And there are many little stories of victory here. We take three steps forward, we take two steps back, but we're better and further on than we were. Thank God for that. But the second thing is this. I want to go right back to the Beatitudes, which we all read together. Commonly translated, blessed. Blessed is the person who does thus and so. Many commentators will tell you that that might be better translated as happy. Happy are those that mourn. Happy are those. Happy are those who seek after the kingdom. I like N.T. Wright, the, the Anglican theologian's take on this. He says, actually, it should be translated as wonderful news. Wonderful news. 
Wonderful news, the poor in spirit are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And suddenly we begin to see right at the beginning of Jesus' Everest of a teaching, what we call the interpretive key. Let me explain. The first verse says this, wonderful news. You are blessed if you're poor in spirit, for yours will be the kingdom of God. Wonderful news. You are blessed if you mourn, for you will be comforted. Wonderful news. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You see, this great body of teaching, which if you engage with it with integrity and honesty, will probably and appropriately elicit in you, oh my gosh, there's no way I can do this. If it triggers in you a sense of the poverty of your spirit before God, a God who is perfect, if it triggers in you a grief that you can't be more like Jesus, if it triggers in you a meekness and a humility rather than arrogantness, oh, I can do that. If it triggers that in you, then it has done its work well. Because in that posture, we come before the God of heaven and earth and we say, oh God, oh God, oh God, I, I need a savior. I need your forgiveness. I cannot do this alone. Please forgive me and fill me with the new life of Jesus. That's the way to look at it. That's the interpretive key. If you hold that with you, you'll see the teachings of Jesus in a new light. Bless you. Let's stand and pray. Let's have the band back up. Thank you. Father God, I just want to say thank you to you. We're not playing at games here, Lord God. We're not trying to ape Christians or imitate holy people. Lord, we come before you knowing that we need a savior. We come before you aspiring to do right and to do good and to make a difference and have a purpose and live the life of Jesus, and rightly so. It's what true human beings are capable of. But we're dogged by sin and failure and shame. It's not about turning over a new leaf because the old leaves remain the same. Lord God, we realize we need to come to you for a profound cleansing and a profound filling that we might become more human as you designed and intended us to be. So thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus.
And thank you, Holy Spirit, for we put our trust in you. And everyone said, Amen.